Uh, please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we are continuing our series tonight on covenant theology, and we're going to look at what we call the Davidic covenant. Maybe uh, sometimes you have read your Bibles, uh, especially the Old Testament, and you've thought to yourself, how does this really relate to me? This, is, uh, this passage happened 3,000 years ago. Is uh, something 3,000 years ago really relatable to me living in 2023? And uh, I would submit to you that when we see the Bible and the Old Testament especially from a Christ-centered perspective, uh, which is important for us to do, then we see really how all of this relates to us. And so... My, my goal tonight is, is to help you not only understand what God's covenant with David actually was, but, but most importantly, really to see it from a Christ-centered perspective. And then the, the, the things that God promises in the Davidic covenant, in, in a sense, become more alive for you. Because they, they, they are promises God makes to you, not just to David, not just to uh, a king who lived in Israel 3,000 years ago, but to you living here in 2023, these promises are yours. And so that's the great thing about reading the Bible with uh, Christocentric lenses, as it were, that, that we see how all of this now becomes reality and, and truth for us. So Second Samuel 7, uh, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of, of men with the stripes of the sons of men." But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You all are um, aware of the fact that we live in a world of broken promises. Whether it is our politicians or companies or just normal people, promises are often broken. Now, since this is true, and since we are, we are in a sense used to people breaking their promises, how can we be so sure that God is going to keep his promise to us? For example, how, how can you be sure that all of your sins are forgiven? How can you be sure that, that when you die, when you leave this life, you will go to heaven? Well, the best way to know that God will not break his promises to you is by looking at what he has done in the past, looking at what he has done in redemptive history. In other words, it's, it's to look at God's track record. It, it's to see that, that God has kept all of the promises that he has ever made. And that's one of the great things about the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant comes to us and it tells to us not only is God a promise-making God, but, but most importantly, God is a promise-keeping God. A lot of people make promises and don't keep them. But God makes promises and he always keeps them. And that's one of the things that we should love about the Davidic covenant. It, it reminds us that God is faithful God will never go back on a promise to you. He will never go back on his word to you. And, and so as we work our way through this passage and, and come to hopefully a greater understanding of what the Davidic covenant is, I, I want us to see three things. First of all, there is the background to this covenant. And then there is the meaning of this covenant. And then there is the significance of this covenant. So, so the background, the, the meaning, in other words, what is it? And then the significance, in other words, how does it apply to us? How does it relate to us? So first of all, the background to the Davidic covenant. At, at this point in 2 Samuel, uh, David is living peacefully in Jerusalem. You, you might remember when we went through this book together a couple of years ago, I think, that the Lord had given at this point David rest from all of his enemies. And, and now that David is at peace, now that David is at rest, he thinks to himself, you know what, God has done so much for me. He has blessed me so much. Now I want to do something for him. And, and specifically, what David wants to do is he wants to build a more appropriate home for the Ark of the Covenant. Children, you might remember that the, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And, and in David's mind, it, it doesn't make sense that this, this holy piece of furniture representing God's very presence would be relegated to a tent, to the tabernacle. And so David goes to Nathan. Remember, Nathan is a prophet. He goes to Nathan the prophet, and, and he tells Nathan his plans. And, and David says, David, that sounds like a really good idea. The Lord is with you. You should do it. But, but as we read this passage, you notice that God has different plans. That, that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, and the Lord says to Nathan, I want you to tell David that I'm going to build him a house. I don't want him to build me a house, God says to Nathan. I'm going to build David a house. 
Now, now why is this? Why? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good idea, right? It sounds like a great idea that, that David would build a more appropriate home for the ark. Why does God say, no, David, I don't want you to do that? Well, he gives us two reasons. First of all, there was nothing wrong with the tabernacle. If you look at verse 6, God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Think of all the trials and and all the, the difficulties God's people had gone through since the Exodus. I mean, Egypt was bad in and of itself. And then they get out of Egypt. And, and once they get out of Egypt, things are still very difficult. There's, there's rebellion from within. Israel's constantly grumbling and complaining. And there's oppression from without as the, as the pagan nations try to destroy God's people. And, and yet, it's as if God is saying here, I have not suffered one bit by having a tent from my place of dwelling. And, and even when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, God could not be contained by his enemies. You, you might remember there's this whole scene in, I think it's in 1 Samuel 5, where the Philistines capture the Ark. Remember that? They, they capture the Ark, and then God afflicts the Philistines with tumors. And, and so it wasn't as if God was somehow less, less powerful because he was living, in a sense, in a tent. And, and secondly, the second reason God doesn't want David to build him a, a house is because God had not commanded this. Look at verse 7. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying to them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? There was no command from God that David needed to build God a house. It it may have seemed like a good idea to to David, but it it wasn't something that God had told David to do. And, And so God says, no, David, now is, now is not the time to build me a house. So, so that's the background to what we're now going to look at. That's the background to this covenant. And now we come to the meaning of the covenant. At this point, God now goes back in the past. And you notice as we read this passage that, that God reminds David of what he had done for David. Verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I, I took you from the pasture. I took you from following the sheep. I, I made you prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. I, I, I've cut off all your enemies from before you. He, he says, David, remember what I've done for you. Now, if you were here last Sunday night, you, you remember when we were looking at the Mosaic Covenant. I said to you that in most covenants in that day, there was what is called a historical prologue. And, and so when a, a greater king would enter into a covenant with a lesser king, the greater king would spend the first part of the covenant ceremony saying to the lesser king, don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget how I rescued you. Don't forget how I've protected you. Don't forget how I've provided for you. And, and that's exactly what God is doing here. This is the historical prologue to the Davidic covenant. He says, David, I took you out of the pasture. I, I, I took you away from the sheep. I, I made you king. I've defeated your enemies. I've been with you wherever you have gone. Now, as an aside, while we may not be the king of Israel, isn't there a sense in which we could say the same thing is true for us? 
What do we have that, that God has not given us? Think of all that God has provided for you. It's, it's often easy for us to complain and, and to think about what we don't have. And we, we should, especially as Christians, we should reflect on all the blessings that we do have. And, and all the things that God has given to us. And, and children, this is why it's important that, that you use whatever abilities, whatever talents God has given you for his glory because they all come from him. And, and so whatever it is, whatever it is we are pursuing, we, we are not to waste our abilities. We are not to waste our gifts. We are here to say, Lord, thank you for all that you have done for me. Thank you for all that you have provided for me. For me. Help me, help me not to complain Help me not to be bitter. Help me to be thankful for for all that you have given to me. And so God says, David, don't forget all that I've done for you. And and now God is going to tell David what he's going to do for David. And and this is really the heart of the Davidic covenant. Now, if if you underline in your Bible an interesting thing to do, is to look at this passage and every time you see the phrase I will or shall, underline it. And I've told you throughout this series, first of all, not all covenants are the same. And, and this, is why, this is why this little phrase I will is so important. Not all covenants are exactly the same. Some covenants are what we call bilateral covenants or mutual covenants. In other words, covenants where one party says, you do this for me and I will do this for you. Remember the illustration I gave you last week or the week before of a car loan. Uh, The bank agreed to give you the money to buy the car. And you, in turn, agreed to pay that money back over time. It's It's a mutual covenant is what a car loan is. And, and if you don't make the payments, if you don't owe, uphold your end of the deal, what happens? They, they come and repossess your car. It's a mutual covenant. In, in the Bible, the covenant of works that God made with Adam was, in a sense, a mutual covenant. God demanded perfect obedience from Adam, and if Adam offered perfect obedience, God would give him eternal life. The same is true of the covenant we looked at last Sunday night, which is the Mosaic Covenant. God agreed to bless Israel, to prosper them in the land if they would be faithful in obeying all of his commands. Those are mutual covenants. But there are other covenants in the Bible that are unilateral covenants or unconditional covenants. In other words, these are covenants where one party says, I'm going to do it all for you. That's true of the covenant of grace, isn't it? God promises to save his people through the work of his Redeemer. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. We don't contribute anything to our right standing with God. It's all of his grace. We have to be very careful that we do not turn the covenant of grace into a bilateral covenant where we say we get in by grace, but we stay in by our works, or we stay in by our faithfulness. The covenant of grace is an unconditional covenant. It's the same thing here in the Davidic covenant. This was a unilateral, 
unconditional covenant. And, and that stands out when you see all the uses of the phrase, I will. T- take a look at how often this passage says this. Verse 9, God says, I will make for you a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Verse 11, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord will make you a house. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Verse 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You have to work really hard to miss this. You just can't miss it. A dozen or so times, God says, I will. I will do these things. It's not, David, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. If you obey me, then I will. That was the Mosaic Covenant. But the Davidic covenant is is unconditional. God is graciously going to give these blessings to David. Now the question that we want to ask is, is, was this covenant fulfilled? Did God bring to pass what he promised? Well, after after David dies, children, you know who becomes king after David. It's Solomon, David's son. One of the things we know, we know, we know Solomon for a few things, but one of the things we know him for is that he was the one who built the temple, just as God promised that Solomon would do here in verse 13. And, and very interestingly, when that temple was built, they had a, they had a huge dedication service. Often when a, when a church has a new building, they will have a dedication service. I wasn't here when this building was erected, but I'm assuming that you had a dedication service for the building. Dedicate this building to the glory of God. Well, Solomon builds the temple, and they have this this big dedication service. And at that dedication service, Solomon offers this beautiful prayer. If you have your Bible open, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings is a couple books to the right, or one book to the right of 2 Samuel. 1 Kings chapter 8. And notice verse 22, 1 Kings 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Now notice what it says next. You have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. God's house has been built just as God said it would. Solomon, David's son, is on the throne, just as God said he would. All is well. In fact, you you could even say that that Israel is really, in a sense, at the height of their game at this point. Things are going amazingly well for Israel. Israel's name is great. There's peace in the land. The temple has been built. David's son is on the throne. And we go, yes, yes. 
The Davidic covenant has been fulfilled. Not so fast. What else do we know about Solomon? Solomon, sadly, didn't finish well. Children, Solomon is not an example of how you want to end your life. He did not finish the race well. If you have your Bible open still, go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Notice how Solomon finished, unfortunately. This, this really ties in with the seventh commandment we looked at earlier tonight. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And notice this. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon dabbled around with unbelieving women. And they turned his heart away from the Lord, and they turned his heart away from the Lord to such an extent that Solomon now engaged in idol worship. He made idols and worshipped them. And when Solomon dies, what happens to Israel? Is everything great still? Solomon dies, and it gets worse. The kingdom is split in two. And now you've got the northern kingdom of Israel southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually, you remember the story, eventually the the northern kingdom is exiled into Assyria. Uh, About 150 years later, the Babylonians uh, invade the southern kingdom. They destroy the temple, and, and they take God's people captive. And now it's really bad. God's name is, in a sense, dragged through the mud. Uh, Israel's name is not great. There's no peace in the land. There's no king on the throne. And and when you get to that point of the story, you go, what happened to the Davidic covenant? Pastor, you told us all the times that God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And, And now it seems like it's not happening. What what happened to God's promise? Your throne shall be established, David, forever. We know what forever means. And and Israel, in a sense, is no more. They've been exiled. They've been destroyed almost. And back to the beginning of the sermon, it doesn't seem that God keeps his promise here in the Davidic covenant. And if he doesn't keep his promise in the Davidic covenant, how do you know he's going to keep his promise to you? How do you know that he's not going to go back on his promises to you? 
Well, that's why we need to understand the significance of this covenant. God didn't break the promise he made to David. God didn't go back on his word. And and this is why we need, first of all, to know our Bibles, why we need to be whole Bible Christians. This is why we need to understand the Old Testament. This is why we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. And this is why we need to read the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. Because at first glance, it, it seems as if the Davidic covenant has failed. It's done. But that's not the truth. Now take your Bibles and go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Israel is called a stump. Children, you know what a tree stump is, right? Tree stumps are are not at all impressive. No one goes, hey, you know, let's, let's forget the redwood forest. Let, let's forget the 300-foot-high the trees that we can drive our, our SUV through. And let's go to the tree stump forest. The tree stump forest doesn't exist because no one wants to see a bunch of tree stumps. Tree stumps are, are not impressive. And, and here in Isaiah, when, when God calls Israel a tree stump... The point is being made, Israel is not in a good place. They're they're not impressive. They're they're rather insignificant. They've been invaded by the Assyrians, invaded by the Babylonians. And again, maybe God's promises have failed. And maybe his promises to you will fail. But notice verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There's a glimmer of light. There's a glimmer of hope. There's hope for this this great king. Now let's connect the dots. Go now to Jeremiah chapter 23. One book. To the right of Isaiah is Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now again, from a human perspective, it it doesn't seem like God's promises to David are being fulfilled. 
And, and yet, the, the, the promise keeps getting reiterated. I will provide one. I will provide one. I will provide a king. I will provide him for you. And, and when we get to the New Testament, what we find in the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew is, is giving us a hint that Jesus will be the one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. Yes, it was fulfilled temporarily through Solomon. But, but Solomon was just pointing to someone greater. And, and this is why when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel says this to Mary. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And listen to this. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There it is. There's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. There was a greater king who was anticipated. There was a greater king who would come. And so let's go back to our very original question. How can you, living 3,000 years after this covenant, how can you know for sure, how can you be certain that God is going to keep his promises to you? Well, one of the reasons we can know this is because we can look back in the past, we can read our Bibles, And we can see how God has always kept his promises in the past. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The New Living Translation puts it this way, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. How can you be sure? that God will keep his promises to you, they have been fulfilled in Jesus. And isn't that true in this whole series of covenant theology? The very first covenant we looked at, covenant of redemption. In the covenant of redemption, Jesus voluntarily agreed to come and save you from your sins. In the covenant of works, Jesus perfectly fulfilled that covenant as well as the Mosaic covenant. By keeping God's law perfectly in our place. Because of Jesus, the the, the promises of the covenant of grace are ours through faith alone. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as well. And so I ask you tonight a very simple question. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior? If so, you can be assured tonight on the authority of God's word that God will always keep his promises to you. Not one of them will ever fail. I want to end tonight by thinking specifically about two of the promises that God makes here in the Davidic covenant and how they relate to us. First of all, back to 2 Samuel 7. Notice the, the first part of verse 13. 
God makes the promise, he shall build a house for my name. Now Solomon built a house for the Lord. He built the temple. But, but you all know that the temple was ultimately destroyed. Jesus, though, is the fulfillment of that temple. He is the temple of God. He is the dwelling place of God. Colossians says this, In Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And, and now, as those who are united to Christ by faith, we are being built into this spiritual house. And, and Jesus continues to, to gather and, and build and preserve and defend his church. I will build my church, he says. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as the world rages against the church, as the world rages against the truth of God's word, never forget that our Savior will keep us and he will not allow his church to be overthrown. And secondly, notice another promise here in verse 15 or 14, the middle of verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Now you say, how did Jesus fulfill that? I mean, Jesus never sinned. Children, you know that, right? Jesus never sinned. And, and so how can, how can Jesus be the fulfillment of this? He, he had no sin of his own to be punished. Isn't it true, though, that he had all of our sins laid upon him? And he was punished for all of those sins? Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I, I, I trust tonight that this is good news for you. My sins have been laid on Jesus. Your sins, Christian, were laid on Jesus. And, and he took the punishment, he took the, the stripes that we deserve so that that punishment will never be ours. This is such an important covenant. It's such a wonderful reminder that, that we serve and belong to an eternal king who will never be without a throne. He will never be dethroned. He will never be defeated. He will always reign. His kingdom will never end. And, and this king came and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves so that all of God's promises to us would come to pass. So that God would keep every one of his promises to us. And so it's easy to read the Davidic covenant and say that happened so long ago. But when you read it from the perspective of Jesus and what he has done and who he is, it's then that you go, aha, now I see. Now I see how this covenant comes to life and how it applies to me. Jesus is my king. Jesus is the king, the king of kings, 
who demands our worship, demands that we follow him, and he is the king who has paid the price for all of our sins. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for this covenant that you made with King David many years ago, a covenant that is so incredibly relevant to us tonight as we see how this covenant found its ultimate fulfillment in our Savior. Father, we thank you that we serve a a risen Savior and King, an ascended Savior and King, the Savior who is at your right hand, who has poured out your Spirit upon us, Lord, may we live now in the joy of our salvation. May we live now in the strength of your Holy Spirit. And may we rejoice that we, by your grace, are part of this eternal kingdom.